Everybody, welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our Black identities. I am your host, Eddie Eddie. I am overjoyed for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shapes of Black identities, have real conversation, tell Black stories, and have great discussions. Hey, as always, our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point. Like I always say, we're not trying to prove a point. Exploring our Black identities is all about empowerment, learning, and giving people a voice to tell their stories, and at times be a voice for those individuals who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. Hashtag, not all Black people are the same. So today, I am beyond thrilled, overjoyed, super excited, all of those fun adjectives to explain how excited and you know overjoyed I am. Um, I have Marcella David with me today, and hey, listen, this conversation is going to be absolutely amazing because Marcella David is one of those individuals. She is just full of experience. She has done it all. She has been it all. And I mean, the first time I introduced Marcella David was probably many, many years ago. I think it was in 2006. I remember going off and introducing her at an event that um, we're hosting for staff council. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, this is one of the most accomplished black women I know. And that was 2006. So of course, since then, things has changed. Um, So right now, Marcella is the senior vice president and provost and professor in business and entrepreneurship department at the Columbia College, Chicago. Um, Basically, right now, she serves as as the college's chief academic affairs. Oh, no, hold on. Let me get this straight. (laughs) The chief academic officer and provides leadership for all academic planning, review, program development at the undergraduate and graduate level. And that's probably about 5% of her duties. Uh, Before joining uh, Columbia College in Chicago, though, she was the provost and vice president of academic affairs in Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, one of the nation's top historical black colleges and universities with almost 10,000 students across broad broad range of this discipline. I can't even talk because I am so excited. I'm actually a bit intimidated though, because like being in Marcella's presence is just like a whole different level. Um, So before uh, uh, FAMU though, she held various um, administrative leadership roles at the University of Iowa, including being the associate dean of the College of uh, Law and then a special assistant to the president for equal opportunity and diversity. And that's when I met uh, Marcella. Hey, listen, she has won many awards, including the Outstanding Scholar Award, the Distinguished Achievement Award, lots and lots of publications. I mean, guest speaker, she has done it all. I'm saying from Queens, New York, Welcome, Marcella David. Thank you for joining on the edge with Eddie. How are you doing, Marcella? Are you staying warm? 
I am staying warm. I am I'm staying warm. It's hard to at this moment, but I'm staying warm and yeah. uh, feeling really sorry for all those people who are in parts of the country that normally don't freeze over and how they're trying to deal with that. So lots yeah, of in Texas. I know. Boom. Warm thoughts go into Texas. Yeah. Can you imagine He's... being in Florida and then it was snowing? <laughs> Though, like, I don't know. They, they don't know how to hand. They, I, I lived in Florida. I lived in northern Florida, which is, you know, not it. That's about as cold as you can get and still be in Florida. And um, they're so funny. They, there were people who would one day be wearing a fur coat. Mm. you know and i'm just like looking at them and they're like it's freezing out there and i'm like it's not freezing out there right and they're like you're just saying that because you come from the north and you don't know that it's freezing out there i'm like no i'm saying that because it is not freezing (laughs) (laughs) oh i feel for them i feel for them obviously oh man it yeah no i mean the weather is just has taken it it total turn which again where it's the middle of winter right it's expected it's and for those people who don't believe in global warming <laughs> no it's it is the middle of winter and it's extreme weather right and that's what it's climate change leads to extreme weather so um that was the movie that was the whole plot of the day after tomorrow that movie that came out yep. many yep. years ago is that you get extreme weather with global change yeah. i'm i'm looking forward to um Hopefully the weather stays extreme for another few days because I want to get out and take some pictures. Oh, um, yep. but I need some yep. time on the weekend to bundle up and go out and take some pictures. So, so let's talk a little bit about your hobby. Uh, okay, because your picture taking skills is like I don't know above everything that I've seen. And you have your own calendars, which thank you so much for sending me those calendars. I have them, you know, in my office, and the pictures are super amazing. How did you end up getting into picture taking and not just taking random pictures? You actually make trips to take pictures of this. Amazing- I know. I know. <laughs> actually, it, it, that is part of my origin story, because <laughs> when I was a girl in uh, going up in Queens, New York, um, going to church with my family, it's St. Joseph's Episcopal Church. And, you know, I was born in the 60s. And so in the seventies, that was when people and our church was mostly a black church and middle-class and people were beginning to go and travel and and there'd be people who'd go to the Holy land or there'd people who go a trip to Africa and the church had a school. And when people would go on one of those trips after church on Sunday, There'd be like cookies and coffee and juice and things. And we'd all sit in the gym of the school part. And people would pull out their the slide projector with the carousel and they Mm. would put the slides in. And if you went on a trip, you'd come back with pictures and you'd share it with everybody in the community. And so um, for me, it was like if you're if you go out, if, so first, if you're traveling, you're going, you're going to Africa, you're going to the Holy Land, you're going to all these places, and then you're coming back and you're sharing the story and showing people the pictures. Um, and so 
taking pictures when you travel was part of what you needed to do. And so I, when I went traveling to places and I, we'd go traveling on vacation or family vacation, but I started going traveling by myself. And, and in particular, I um, did a study abroad trip to England when I was in college and I understood I was going to take pictures of everything and I was going to go home and I was going to share that with my family, with, you know, my broader family. I think by then I wasn't necessarily thinking about sharing it with um, my church and anymore, but it was, you know, you're going away and you're taking pictures and you're bringing them back to share. Um, and, and because I was interested in taking pictures, my mother started giving me the camera when I was a teenager, she started giving me the camera. Uh, okay. um, and so we go to any family event and I was the official picture taker because my mother would buy these cameras. My mother bought many cameras. She understood how to use very few of them. <laughs> and so she'd buy these cameras and she'd give the camera to me. And my responsibility was to take the pictures, a family wedding, take the pictures. And so I, I started learning how to do it and I was pretty good at it. Mm. Um, and I wanted, I'm, I am at heart an academic. And so I wanted to know what I was doing and to study and to learn. So I, I started taking classes, you know, here a class, there a class, a workshop, um, going on travel workshops to places where you go and take pictures. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it it's the travel sometimes is to support the photography, yeah. Um, or sometimes the photography is to tell the story of the travel, mm, but yeah. travel and photography is inextricably linked. It's inextricably linked. Wow. That, so again, you, your picture, that makes sense now, because I mean, I think a lot of times, like I see some of your pictures and the way you see objects or, you know, the way you see landscape, or even it could be, you know, a raccoon in the middle of somewhere. And the way you <laughs> capture this moment, you know, it gives me a different perspective on, you know, the world. And I mean, kudos to you. That's amazing. But it makes sense because again, you've been doing this for a really long time. Um, so you had mentioned growing up in the... In I am old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. Is that so, what you're saying? I'm 60s, old. <laughs> no, 60s is not that old because I am a 70s baby. So I think you probably give or take maybe 10 or so years older than I am. So I can't quite call you old, maybe a big sister. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, but you mentioned growing up in Queens um, in the late, in the 60s, and you mentioned church. What was it like growing up in Queens when you grew up, what was the atmosphere like? Oh, so um, I grew up in Corona East Elmhurst area. And that was, um, you know, Queens, like many parts of New York, has various little neighborhoods. Um, and there's a Queens is so let me start. Uh, uh, there's so much to say. Let me start off by saying that today, right now, Queens is the most diverse county in the country. Hmm. And while it is much more diverse today than it was when I was growing up, it was still a diverse place, right? So you had the Italian neighborhoods and you had the Greek neighborhoods and you had the black neighborhoods, you had the Puerto Rican neighborhoods, you had the, I mean, so there are all these neighborhoods, the Chinese neighborhoods 
neighborhood. You had all these neighborhoods in Queens. And so Corona East Elmhurst was a very um, big black neighborhood. East Elmhurst was a little higher middle class, but Corona was pretty solidly middle class neighborhood. And um, so so growing up was 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 wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful. There were all so many role models and so many people um, on my block at the end of the street was a house that Louis Armstrong um, grew up in. Um, wow. You know, we were near to the tennis um, uh, where the U.S. Open is played. Um, and we were near to um, Shea Stadium where the Jets used to play and the Mets used to play or Mets still play. I guess now it's City Field. Um, and so there are all those, all those people would live in the community. That was part of your base was knowing those people. So there are all sorts of these wonderful people that you grew up with. And, um, and so growing up there was wonderful. It was a really wonderful thing. My parents were engaged in, in the church. Our church was a little farther away from where we lived, but my parents were engaged in the church. My mother was PTA president, my auntie was in the city government. So it was, it was just a vibrant place where there were role models all around you. So you grew up exposed to practically different cultures from all around the world, um, exposed to sort of, you know, the different people, different personality, different races, different color to people, colors of people. Um, Growing up, did you, at that time, growing up being exposed to virtually everything around you, did it dawn on you that there is something called, one, racism, there is something called the an in, injustice, or there is a system that is not fair to everybody else around you? Absolutely. At a young age. Absolutely. Tell me more. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, so that was elementary school, you know, it was my, my neighborhood was my, my, my boundaries were my neighborhood elementary school. By the time I got to junior high school, um, I was getting on um, a bus, but it was busing a light busing light. Um, but I was getting in public transportation and going over to uh, a different place, which was much more mixed. Um, and, and, and then you're living in a city where there's racism. I mean, there's racism, racism, and I don't want to mean, um, there's certainly hostile racism, but also just latent racism. So, yeah. you know, even when we'd go out and do things like, so my parents were very much into culture and you're right. We used to go to all of the different restaurants and the Greek restaurants and uh, the Greek diners and the Italian restaurants. And we'd go into the city and we'd go see events and things of that nature. I remember there was a moment in time when we loved music and we, we were going to see a musical and we were going to see Pearly Victorious. And Pearly Victorious was a black musical. And I remember I said to my father, I said, why, why is it called a black musical? And, you know, why, why, why do they say it's a new black musical? Because there are advertisements. And it was all like, go see the new black musical or go see the whiz, the new black musical. And he said that, you know, 
I suppose there are some white people who'd be very upset if they came in to see this musical and found out that it was going to be, you know, presenting enter- entertainment from a black perspective. Oh. I remember him saying that. And he seemed sad to tell me that. It was very interesting that he was sad to have to explain that to me in that way. Um, but there, but everything was labeled, you know, it was, and in most, it, uh, to be honest, it was mostly black and white, right? So it was the black musical or um, the black play, or there's a new black restaurant. <clears throat> so yeah. it, the, the racial divisions were um, pretty stark. And that hasn't really changed, though. Um, I mean, even now, a lot of the, the the musicals. I mean, again, sometimes I don't, you don't, they don't come out and say this is a black musical, but well, sometimes <laughs> they do. But it's still there, right? Um, it's is this ever going to change? Well, I think it is still there, but I actually think you know I'm struck when I watch television. Um, and I watch too much of it. Um, and it is background noise. And, uh, and so the commercials come on and I'm struck at how commercials, for example, have changed dramatically in the last three to four years where, you know, they, you don't see a car commercial anymore where there, it's like, there's no, there actually is, are no black families anymore. I mean, it's like, the, it's like every, it's every family now is a rainbow, right? It's a rainbow of genders and races and religions and everything else. It, and that's, that's been a remarkable change, I think, in the last few years. Um, and I think today, you know, you look at something like, um, Hamilton um, or yeah, yeah. or that new Shonda Rhimes show that I haven't seen yet Bridge, Bridgerton Bridgerton uh, right Bridgerton. where they're just Bridgerton. like throwing yeah, yeah. people in um, and and yep. so that has actually been a pretty remarkable change that I've seen but it wasn't that way it wasn't that way when I was growing up you know and it was it was it was not only that it was labeled it was like the Jackson five was the black version of the Osmonds and you had to go out. It was like, you had to right. rumble. It's like the Jackson fives have a new album out. Is it going to make it to number one? Cause we can't let the Osmond yeah. album be a number one. And it was, I mean, it was all this kinds of stuff. Um, and um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, it was weird. I'm sorry. I'm not sure where I was going with that. Yeah. So I'll just stop. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that's perfectly fine. So let's talk a little bit about, again, you say you get to. I'm sorry. High this is, this is noodle. So noodle. Go, go noodle. away. Noodle. Let's see if we can get noodle to go away. Sorry. <laughs> And can there's you... kimchi. We're talking about the cats now. Yeah. <laughs> You'll okay. call him. You can't say that. <laughs> Okay, don't call him. I got it. Um, so you get to junior high and now you're a busing again. You know, so you had mentioned, you know, as a little um, girl in church, everything was there, the culture, everything. And now you get to a space that you have to bust and you're getting more exposed to sort of um, maybe the black mm-hmm. and white world. Um, do you remember your first experience of being treated differently um because of oh <laughs> I, I i'm not sure if i can tell you i remember the first experience but i can tell you my 
Sorry, I'm going to have to hold him to make him happy. I can tell you my experiences in junior high school, um, you know, yep. and, and I had I, I, you know, I had an older sister who had gone through the same junior high school as me. And, you know, she was I, I call myself a kind of natural academic. She was not. Um, and I remember we're not going to tell her that <laughs> I remember um Going to parent-teacher night, you know, you you follow your parent around, and the, the the teachers would say all sorts of things. And my mother was just incensed, and because one of the one of the teachers said, "I thought you all were just the bad black family, but because your your oldest daughter wasn't a good student, but Marcel is a good student, so you probably." I mean, it was just like, or wow. or I had oh my goodness, I had a teacher, a social studies teacher, who said. Um, uh, we were talking about what, what were the significant contributions of cultural contributions of, of different parts of the world. And, um, and he said, well, nothing really that significant came out of Africa. And I went home and, you know, my mother, I said this to my mother, my mother, you know, my mother is like, and, you know, we had the, um, we had the deluxe edition of the, um, Encyclopedia Britannica. And so she pulled out the Encyclopedia Britannica and we went and we looked and it's like, so I marched back into class and I'm like, well, my mother told me uh, that, you know, the math and the pyramids and all these things. And, and, and people still today don't even know how they built the pyramids because they're right. such an amazing thing. And my social studies teacher looked at me and he said, they are only able to do that because of the Europeans who went to Africa. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, went, I went back wow. and my mother's like, just let it go. Um, you know, or, or I, I was, I was a student who, um, you know, I, there are magnet schools and there are science magnet schools. And I, um, mm took the test to go to science, um, to Stuyvesant High School, which is a science and math magnet school in Manhattan. And my guidance counselor, I was one of only three students in my junior high school who got into that particular magnet school. It's okay. the hardest one. It's the smallest one. So it's the hardest one to get into. And um, my guidance counselor said to me and not to the other two people who were um, not black, um, that right. I should not go to that school because I would be better off going to my local high school where I could be a big fish in a small pond than to go to the better school where I really couldn't expect to do that well. That, <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so at, at, at a young age, <laughs> first of all, what was going through your mind when you you know you're listening to all these things you're not good enough to be in the same space you, you don't deserve to be in the same space you need to go hang out with quote unquote you know the black people because you don't deserve to be here yeah what was going on with you at that time like how did that make you feel I, I really can't tell you how it made me feel because I'm I was I was in junior high school so I was stupid right I was dumb right and these are authority <laughs> figures and and so they would tell me these things and I would go home and you know I went out the great news is that I had parents who I loved dearly and talked to 
Um, and yeah. a mother who understood, you know, because she had been PTA president, uh, she understood the, what was going on. And she was part of a, you know, a broader family and church community that was, full. I mean, my mother and father went to college after I was born. So they understood education and they understood how hard it was and they wanted it to be an easier road for me and for my sister than it was for them. Right. And so I'd go home and I'd say these things to my mother. Like I went home and I said, oh, well, mom, um, this is what my guidance counselor said. He said, I really shouldn't go to Stuyvesant. I should go to Andrew Jackson High School because I'll be able to succeed there and I'll, you know, I'll, uh, it'll be a more comfortable environment for me. And so I'm probably going to do that. Right. And my mother's like, oh, no. no, no, no. <laughs> So, you know, I think as I got into high school yeah. and then college, that's when I became much more aware and appreciative of that, of these interactions as being barriers, as being mm. exclusionary. Um, and yeah, that's, that's when I became more aware of it. Before that, it was just, you know. Yeah, okay. just whatever. Yeah. So, but you did, you went to William Cooper High School correct? No, I went to William Cooper's, my junior high school. Oh, William Cooper's junior high school. Okay. And then, and then Stuyvesant High School was, um, the, I did end up going to Stuyvesant High School. Got it. (laughs) Um, and, and, and that was, you know, that was, that was fun. That was, I mean, that was good. Um, that was a place that where, you, you know, geeky, Geeky people are actually very creative. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, I did plays and I played the French horn and I sang in the choir. I actually created a gospel choir. Oh, okay. Um, do you still have the, do the members of those gospel choir, are they still in a position to sing? <laughs> that's interesting. I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can answer that, but I can say that on, you know, Facebook, I actually connected with one student a number of years ago on Facebook and, um, and she sent a message that actually thrilled me. She said that being in the gospel choir was like one of her, one of the best experiences that she could recall from high school. Mm. Yeah. And I have to say, it wasn't like there was a ton of black people at Stuyvesant High School. There, there still aren't today, but there wasn't at the time. So this was a gospel choir of just a bunch of people. I'm like, hey, we should do a gospel choir. And mm. yeah, because, you know, because the choir, the choir, the main choir, there are students who were studying in, you know, at Juilliard and and there are students who were studying. And so, they, you know, the gospel, the, the gospel choir was just like, this is a place where we could sing and we could just sing some songs and enjoy each other's company. And then we actually uh, petitioned to sing um, uh in one of the school concerts and we sang in one of the school concerts. And I think it continued after I graduated for a number of years. Um, yeah. But it was it was just a fun. We, we were a ragtag group, but we we had fun and and we we changed things a little bit there. It's a lot. Of- so the high school. Let's talk a little bit about high school again. High school. You were talking about this is a space that you get to be creative. Um, starting a black choir. 
um, a gospel gospel uh, a gospel choir. choir. If it was a black choir, it would have been choir, very small. <laughs> oh yeah, a gospel choir. So I my I guess my question is going into that. You know, again, it's a prestigious you know, uh, high school. You have the freedom to be creative. Um, being a geek in that space, mm-hmm. and there isn't a lot of black geeky people in that space. Um, was there a lot of labeling happening for you? Like, did, were, were there labels put on you as, you know, uh, the black geek, or what was that like being in such a prestigious space, being a young black woman? Um, uh, of course, people already told you you don't belong there, right? What was that experience like? Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I don't think. Um, high school was actually that bad. I I think I think the you know the the some of my favorite people are geeks, in part because there's an easy way for people to um, there's an easy way for people to relate, right? And you're relating around actual kinds of talent and people if you could do something then the proof was as obvious as you know qed as obvious as a mathematical proof right you just did it um so i actually i you know maybe maybe there were things that were flying over my head all the time but i actually found high school to be a pretty comfortable place it was a challenging place and there was certainly a lot of competition, but the competition was race neutral, at least from my experience. It was it tended to be race neutral. And the teachers, again, if you if you if you did it, if you if you were able to do it, then they were, you know, I, I, I don't recall any kinds of incidents. Um where I would say somebody was targeting me because of my race. They might, they might've said, you're not trying hard enough or you're not smart enough or, um, or, you know, yeah, not, not, I don't have, I don't have any memory about that in high school, in my high school. How did that translate into um, when you got into college? Again, you did um, uh, computer science and engineering, Mm -hmm. Um, first of why computer science engineering? Was it sort of a, was it from your high school that just, you know, sort of just led you into that space? Uh, and what was college experience yeah. like for you? Doing computer so science college is actually different than high school. Um, so I, um, I was going to, I, I, you have to, so, I, so when I was in junior high school, I determined that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, And I participated in a mock trial competition while I was in junior high school. And that just cemented it. And I was going to be a lawyer. Um, And up until my junior year of high school, I thought I was going to be an English major and then go to law school. Um, Two things happened. One is that um, I had a bad experience with a, teacher at in in uh my junior year of high school where um we studied i think it was the third time overall that i had studied romeo and juliet 
but we studied Romeo and Juliet and it's not my favorite play. It's just not, it's just not me. I don't, I don't find romanticism and suicide. And (laughs) I wrote a paper where we were said, the question was, tell us what, tell me what you think about Romeo and Juliet. And I'm like, I think this whole suicide thing is stupid. And the teacher said to me that I had obviously not read it because otherwise I would have loved it. And so I was like, well, I guess that means I won't be an English major. Um, So that was number one. It soured me off of the idea of English. And number two is that I had gone to a a, um, high school fair and I said to my mom, oh, the woman from Radcliffe was there and the woman from Harvard was there and the woman from Columbia was there. And it's all so wonderful. And my mother let me talk about it for like 15 minutes. And then she sat me down and she said, we can't afford to send you to Harvard. We can't afford to send you to Radcliffe. We can't afford to send you to Columbia. (laughs) Um, But then my father worked for Grumman Aerospace and my mother, you know, again, savvy, connected. She's going to get, she's going to get me to college. Um, She said, you know, your father's job has engineering scholarships. So if you, you, she said you, you have now done science and math. And it doesn't matter what you major in to go to law school. So you could study engineering and then you could go to law school. And so that summer she put me on a bus to participate in a program um, called Minorities Introduction to Engineering. I went to the Coast Guard Mm -hmm. Academy for a long weekend and we did little engineering things and we programmed a soda machine. And I came back and I'm like, okay, I can, I can keep studying math and science. It's fine. Uh, I'll study computer something. So I started applying for um, uh, engineering programs and I started, um, I started applying for engineering scholarships and I ended up with an engineering scholarship and I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York. Did you really think you were going to do something with the engineering or was it just a vehicle for you to get a scholarship, get into school and then down the road? Yeah, I, I, I knew it was just a vehicle up until my senior year, at which point I said, well, I could do a couple of years of engineering. And I looked into doing a couple of years of engineering. Um, but then um, I ended up getting a scholarship to go to law school. So I, I actually um, didn't need the financial resources and I could make that transition, that quick transition. Um, so that, that mm-hmm. worked out for me um, pretty well. But when I went to, um, when I went to college, that's where I found a slightly different environment where there were students who, because in the 1970s and early 1980s, I started college in 1982, there was much more of a conversation about affirmative action. Mm, okay. And so I remember being on the floor of my dorm where you know, a student said to me, white guy, uh, he said, uh, you know, I was nice and all of that, but I had taken away this, the, I had taken the seat away from his friend who had really wanted to come to RPI and I had gotten in just cause I was a black woman and, um, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing is that, you know, people make these assumptions and I'm like, 
dope. I went to a better high school than you went to. I literally right. got a 100 on several of the state examinations in math and science. I literally <laughs> got the highest scores in math that you could get in many of my math classes, including my advanced math classes. I scored in the 90 something percentile on the SATs. And you're sure your white homeboy was smarter than me. And I only got in because I'm black and I'm a woman. I mean, that's like, that's, right? that's some badass role. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but that's like badass. Okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's just very funny. Um, wow. So, so, so you get into this space. Now you're finally realizing that, okay, wow, this, this whole, injustice racism it's 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 actually a thing um <laughs> i did know it was a thing i didn't want to say well, don't okay, make me so sound it, like now, i was clueless <laughs> okay so no you you knew it was a thing but now it's like firsthand experience every single day because you're in spaces that people remind you that oh you're a black woman and you're not smart enough to be here and you stole somebody's spot um mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, college in New York. And then when you were in law school uh, in Michigan, mm -hmm. the dynamics of going to college in New York and in Michigan, which is again, Michigan, you know, Midwest, was there a big difference in that experience for you? I said mostly, was it mostly the same? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the same and different. It was different flavoring special yeah. sauce um okay about they you sure you want to know the answer to this i totally want to okay know yeah. um so so um we get we went to law school similarly people assume that i just got in they just let me in um same thing i scored really well on lsat i just want to let you know right. um and people would say oh wow you know, that was a hard exam. And they were just like, oh, but I'm sure you'll do okay next time. And I'm like, dope. <laughs> that was the easiest dope. thing. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Law school was really hard. Law school was really hard. Um, but at the, end of the, at the end of the first year, they award, there's something called book awards. And the book awards um, went to the students who earned the highest grade in your class um and at the end of the at the end of the year i had won three book awards which meant that in two classes i had beat out 95 students and in one class i had beat out 30 something students Ooh. and nobody oh. knew no everyone was surprised because nobody yeah. knew because they all would say oh well and i would just say yeah that was a hard exam <laughs> um and whatever they were assuming about me yeah. they were like stunned to find out at the end of the day that no actually i was doing pretty well there in law school um so people would make assumptions i talked a lot in class um i know stunning right i talked a lot in class um i i participated in a study group and you know i was the person who was kind of organizing the study group so i was kind i was kind of known in my class um so the truth of the matter is the person, one of the people who, who, who complained the most to, about me being a black person yeah. was actually another 
black student in my class in my section who said that I was just I was making it too hard for the other black students and <laughs> I should just like stop talking because you know um it wasn't right <laughs> it's like okay um, okay <laughs> and you were like Daddy Harder? <laughs> I didn't I didn't stop talking. I mean, it's like I'm not gonna stop talking. You do you and I'll do me and we'll all be happy. But it was kind of interesting. But you know, I felt very I felt a lot of sympathy because obviously he was feeling the same pressure that I was feeling. Like you have to prove yourself. Right. You have to prove yourself. Um, and and my sense was I'm just gonna do what I do. And I don't really care about proving myself to anybody. Mm. And he, that wasn't the way he was approaching it at all. And I absolutely, I mean, uh, today I have a lot of appreciation and sympathy for where he was coming from. Right. Um, but, you know, when I say, when I say, oh, maybe that went over my head, that's in part because that's been my philosophy, which is I'm going to do what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm going to do what I'm doing and I'm going to try and do what I want to do to please me. Um, and to meet my own goals um, or to, to live up to my responsibilities, I'm not measuring myself against you. Hmm. And I, I don't care. I, I don't care if you are making assumptions about me and they're all wrong. Right. Um, you know, there's like 1% of the time that I care. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that one percent of the time okay i'll i could throw down but but for the most part that's just the way i just keep going yeah it, it's it's it, yeah if i had known what you're talking about when i was in college i think i would have been a lot more successful than i am now because you know i think for me a lot of times again a lot of people do this is you spend so much time trying to internalize what people are saying about you or doing around you. Um, and for me, it became, I'm going to spend my time not only trying to make sure I'm pleasing people, um, which in the process, I sort of forgot who I was, but I am also going to make sure that, you know, people like how I approach things or people like how I do things. And a lot of times I'm just like, I should have just been like, um, yeah, I don't really care what you think. You know, by the time I found that out, I was in my mid-30s. And I was like, you know, if I had known that that idiot that was telling me about this particular thing in class that I spent days thinking about and that didn't end up anywhere, if I had just ignored and spent that energy studying, I would have been a lot more successful but again you know <laughs> i'm finding that out now and it's a great feeling it's so freeing <laughs> yeah. the freedom of not worrying about what people again it you have to think you have to sometime consider what people think about you that's a given right but not spending your time worrying about other people's thoughts or you know their perceptions about you and how you handle your business for me has been extremely freeing in this mm -hmm. recent years right um <laughs> yeah so my mother would say that you know and my mother died in 2001 my dad died in 2006 but my mother would say that you know i should have been 
my mother my mother lamented she and she died as i said a number of years ago but even at that point in time she lamented that i was not married and i wasn't whatever <laughs> and i just right. compromise and bend and you know um not not you know so so my mother would my mother would say that i i should have paid a little bit more attention to what other people thought and made myself a little bit more attractive to people yeah. um i also find that freeing i mean i'm delighted by the fact <laughs> I mean, when i say delighted i i choose that word i am delighted by the fact that i am at this moment accountable to myself and yeah. myself alone um and you know, I'd say there was a moment in time when I thought I was a strange person for not like getting married and having children and doing all those things that, you know, right. my colleagues and some of my friends were doing, many of my friends were doing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in the space I'm in. I have godchildren who I um, really am enjoying a lot. Um, they range in age from being a college senior who's getting ready to go into a great grad program um, to um, your beautiful yep. Ceci Bell, who is half, just yep. a, a little one. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I have I have all of these people who are who fill my life with a lot of joy and the ability to walk away from not to say i would i would be there i would be there for any of them if they needed me absolutely um but my choices my choices on you know vacation or spending or spending money on my hobbies or all of those things are just choices for me um and the only my only responsibilities are making sure that you know i provide a lap for noodle to sit in uh <laughs> if i'm not going to be here so um, talking about godmothers, um, when Jeremy and I were talking about who we wanted um, Ceci's godmother to be, we had a, a list of people, right? And we were talking through the list and we're like, well, Ceci can have multiple, you know, godmothers. And, you know, again, just like, you know, mentorship, you have to have mentorship in different spaces. We're like, you know what? Ceci needs multiple godmothers. Um, but we have to be, you know, very cautious as far as who we want Ceci's godmother to be. And so we started talking about, so if Ceci grows up, who do we want Ceci to be like, <laughs> right? And then your name came up. It's like, well, hey, well, how about Marcella? Well, because you already, you were on the list. And we're like, well, I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute. Well, I know Marcella and you know Marcella and Marcella is a phenomenal woman. Oh. Chrissy needs to be like Marcella. So again, oh. that, we're, we're truly honored and blessed that, you know, you are Ceci's godmother. And I have to say, though, like the gifts and the the knitting, which we'll talk about knitting <laughs> in a little bit, like all of those handmade things that you send every, you know, Christmas, birthdays, those are just so much appreciated. Um, Ceci's favorite book is um, Love is Wonderful. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, Love love is Wonderful. Ceci screams that all day long. Um, <laughs> it's like, read my book from Auntie, Ma Auntie Marcella, Auntie Marcella. Yeah, so thank you so much for that. But anyway, going back, you are one of the best godmothers um, that I've 
ever known. And, you know, kudos to being an awesome godmother. Let, let's talk a little bit about your first trip or not your first trip. Um, yeah, your first trip to the African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I want to get your sort of your perspective on what you knew about the African continent before you got there. And you went to, I think you went to one of your first pivotal trips was to um, Iraq um, in 1991 and then South Africa in 92 and then India in 2000 where you went to go take some pictures and take your camera with you. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about all the spaces from Africa to India um, and having to deal with, you know, you being who you are. First of all, let me, let me explain what I mean. If you never met Masala before, she's tall, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Masala is a tall, intimidating gorgeous specimen okay okay i mean when you see her i mean i am intimidated uh, intimidated not only by her height i'm intimidated by her mind her words just like her sheer like style it's just out of this world when you go to those places and people look at you and they see you for the first time what did they what did they say or what did they tell you and what what were your sort of viewpoints or perception going to those spaces before you got there yeah that's a really interesting question so um when i went to iraq it was um after what we call the first gulf war um which was in 1991 um and it was part of a humanitarian um I don't want to say I don't want to say mission because mission sounds like we were doing things. It was a, a humanitarian investigation to yeah. see about the impact of our kind of bombardment on um, um, the civilian population. And so I knew I was going on this trip, which my mother did not want me to go on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she did not want me to go on that trip. And you know, I I was I I packed a lot of skirts and you know very kind of discreet clothing and things of that nature. Yeah. But I knew I was going to be traveling. So I had no hair. I had cut off my hair. It's like number two razor all around. Right. Cause that was just <laughs> going to be easiest. And it was like a hundred something degrees. That was so interesting. I cannot tell you how many times I would go into a woman's bathroom and the women because women there grow their hair and then they cover their head and i had a scarf that i would sometimes put over but you know i didn't put it on unless i was going into a space where i knew really needed to have my head covered um and but uh, you know you go into the bathroom or whatever and and there would be women who'd like run out and they'd get literally security because (laughs) they couldn't see past my head um and they're just they didn't know what to do with they totally didn't know what to do with me as a black woman presenting you know with that appearance um but but the thing that was totally cool and this was something i had experienced when i did my um study abroad year when i was in college i had i had a really good friend who was an iraqi woman who was studying physics and her goal was to get to um doing she was doing research on absolute zero um there are a lot of parts of 
um, the Arab world where women are actually not in the forefront. Right. Iraq is not that place. Mm. And so what was totally interesting was that there are times when I was going around and I was part of the team. And because of my background, they're like, you're going to go interview the people at the power plant or the telecommunications plant because you're an engineer. Um, and, and a lot of the times it was women I was interviewing. Yeah. And that was really cool. That was so totally cool to see women who were um, Muslim identifying very authentic in their kind of religious belief and, and comfortable in their culture who were leaders. Mm. Um, so that was really cool because that was counter to the narrative that we get here in the United States. South Africa, I went there when I was, um, when it was kind of just at, in the midst of kind of like Mandela was out and things were beginning to change, but they weren't totally yeah. changed. And um South Africa was when I realized I was, I'm white. Because <laughs> I went in, I came in, I came in and it was like, um, there was a still signs up and a sign said, uh, colored people, blacks and coloreds enter here and whites enter here. Right. So I'm coming in and I'm my U.S. passport and I'm like, OK, well, I know where I go. So I go over to the black line <laughs> right. and they're like, oh, you're American. You should go over to the white line. Oh, <laughs> it was no, it was totally wow. interesting. It was totally interesting. I would go. I went shopping because that's what I do. I spend my little money. Right. I will die. I will die happily in debt. Um, and I went shopping and I was buying some things and I would go into a store and people would follow me. And then I'd ask a question and they'd hear my accent. And all of a sudden I was their best customer because I was American. Right. And then one time I was in Pretoria and I was looking for this government building because I was actually there doing research. I was shopping a little bit, a <laughs> little bit of little bit of whatever, but I was doing research. And I was looking for this government building because I was trying to get some, some resources. I couldn't find it. So I actually walked up to a police officer to ask them directions. They were stunned because police, first off in South Africa, at least at the time, they were not considered public servants, right? They are considered the people who kept black people in their place. Right. So they, it, it wasn't like they, they feel like you, you go up to a Bobby in London, right? And they're like, oh, you right. know, of yeah. course, I'm going to give you directions because that's yep. my responsibility is to right. be welcoming to a tourist. <laughs> and they're like, that's, we don't know how to give out directions. Like, like literally it's like, we don't know. <laughs> And, and, and then I, it was compounded by the fact that I was a black person coming to them for help. Right. And that's the moment when I'm like, I'm really white. I'm really, and in this space, You're white. I am really white. Right. It was just interesting. Now today I would talk about it in terms of privilege. Right. Um, and, you know, the privilege of nationality. But that was a, a, an eye opening experience for me to be in that space. I loved it, though. It was it was not not the not the privileged part. <laughs> right, but I right. loved yeah. my visit to South Africa. That was that was a fabulous, um, a fabulous eye opening. Um, I was I was filled with joy and filled with despair simultaneously because there was so much people thought okay, if we get the vote, it's all going to be better. Right. And I was just like, I just don't think that that's going to make 
the difference you think it's going to make. Uh, uh, and I hope, I hope you don't lose your hope. Right. Yeah. Oh man. Hey, you're on the edge with Eddie. We're talking to Marcella David. I told you uh, she, a phenomenal woman. Um, great at storytelling. I, do not want this to end, but you know what? It's going to have to end part one because you have to wait to hear what we talk about in part two, her knitting, <laughs> coat switching, all the work she did in the diversity space. I mean, the picture taking, um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, I think you were investigating the women's garment in Cambodia um, I think it's the uh, Cambodia's garment industry. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, and just, you know, being in your role from, um, you know, provost, vice president in the DEI space, we have a lot to uncover. But for now, we're going to end on part one because I know people want more and they will come back and listen to more. Before I let you go, though, I want to give you one minute to give out your first message out to the world. Now, of course, we're going to do part two, but give a message out to the world. If you are going to tell the world anything in one minute, what would you want the world to hear? And I'm going to give you some background music for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Um I would want the world, particularly in this moment, to be kind to one another and to be patient with one another and to respect that um, you can, you, somebody else, you can be you without being threatened by the fact that somebody else is following a different path. I think everybody wants everybody to conform to their own space and their own belief. Like we're supposed to politically all adhere to one view because if we don't all adhere to one view, we're losing something. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I don't think my identity is based on your identity. I don't think my political outcomes are based on your political outcomes. And we can just all appreciate everyone from that perspective. Nice, awesome. Thank you so much again. That is Provost Marcella David, my guest on The Edge with Eddie. As she said, treat everyone with kindness and respect, even those who you're rude to, not because they're nice, but because you are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much i can't wait to schedule another time part two is coming up we have a lot to uncover especially when you start changing culture when you start changing systems and policies to make life better for people like myself and my daughter ceci you are amazing i bow down to you thank you so much it was a pleasure thank you love you love you love you it's a wrap thank you